Amen. Our prayer is that it would start with us, that it would start not just with us corporately as a universal church of Jesus Christ, but with us individually as the church at Adams, as Christ Church here at Adamsville Baptist Church, but also with us as individuals, with each and every one of us. We are the starting place for God sending his gospel out to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And last week we discussed that we desire to be vessels that are useful to our master. We said that as vessels in God's house, our desire is to be is not to be dishonorable, but our desire is to be honorable vessels that are what? Fleeing from youthful lust and pursuing godliness. Today, Paul closes out his chapter on uh, chapter two here in the epistle to second uh, of second Timothy with an illusion by closing out his illusions between God's faithful workmen and the workmen within worldly occupations. Today, he closes out with the picture of a bondservant, a slave, literally of Jesus Christ, for indeed he is shown within this second chapter that Jesus Christ has willingly sacrificed his life. Life, shed his blood and endured great suffering for the sake of securing our souls. And because Jesus has purchased my salvation, because he has bought my freedom, because he has shed his innocent blood, I am now forever to be his bondservant, his slave in pursuing and fulfilling the ministry of the gospel. Now, That's the understanding that Paul approaches us with in this passage. Indeed, our character, our care, our compassion is to be evident within our ministry, within the gospel ministry, within our lives. The reality, though, is that our character, especially in the midst of adversity, reveals the true core of our beliefs most effectively Through the expression of our behavior, our belief is most clearly expressed how through our behavior. Through what we do and how we talk and how we walk. Everything that we do. Indeed, you want to know what I believe? Well, just look at how I behave. If I want to know how you believe, what should I start by doing? Looking at how you behave. We indeed, we have been encouraged to flee from youthful lust, to pursue godliness in the areas of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. But this week we are challenged not just to deal with our own selves, but indeed to extend that ministry of edification, of building up, of encouraging others to walk as Christ within the church. So it's not just, I'm going to look after me and mine. It's actually, I'm going to be a part of ministering the gospel throughout my church and my community. Indeed, we see here in this passage the guidelines for confrontation and correction, for confrontation and correction for Christians who have lapsed into sin and doctrinal error. Now, throughout my time in reading, I've constantly read and understood that within our culture, there's only one thing that is more fearful to the average American than death. Do you know what that is? Public speaking. The only thing that's more fearful, that Americans are more fearful of than death is the fear of public speaking. But I think if they had added a third category in, if they had asked, well, are you more afraid of You know, death 
public speaking or the confrontation and correction of someone who is in sin and serious error, I think probably in American culture, we would have chosen the latter, wouldn't we? Just look at the story in the headlines from this week. Indeed, many pastors within the church fear dealing with open sin in the life of the church lest they stir up a hornet's nest and they lose their jobs and their security. Many husbands will not offer loving biblical uh, correction for their wives in obvious sin lest they incur their wife's anger, uh, anger, retaliation, and retribution. Most Christian wives will not lovingly call their professing Christian husbands to account for serious sin that is destroying their marriages and they say, well, I'm just trying to be a godly, submissive wife. But really, I think what's going on is that in each and every one of these situations, we're just scared to deal with sin as what it is, sin, and confront and correct the one who is living in it. Indeed, a majority of Christian parents refuse to correct their rebellious, selfish, and sinful children. Oh, he's my, he's my little boy. He's just my little man, and boys will be boys. Well, she's my little angel, and I would never tell her she has done something wrong. Listen, the parental focus in America is a focus on making good children who will not embarrass us in public rather than making godly children who live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Parents, If your goal is to have good children, you have the wrong priority in parenting. If your goal is for your children not to embarrass you in public, you have the wrong goal in parenting. If your parenting goal is anything other than leading that child to a redemptive, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, you have the wrong goal. We allow our kids to be unsociable, rude, disrespectful in attitude and in speech with absolutely no correction, with no discipline in the home. And then we scratch our head. Why did they grow up and run away and go after the world? Because we taught them that it was okay through our lack of confrontation and correction with the biblical worldview when they were children. We excuse our children's actions rather than encouraging and exhorting them in a biblical manner. Our desire should be what? To indeed confront and correct our children so that their souls are secure for all of eternity, not simply so that they have a nice cushion life here within this world. Across the board in our American families, There is a failure to confront and correct sinful behavior that is shaking the foundation of the family, which is the fundamental building block of society across the board in our American, yes, even in our Christian homes in America. There is a failure to confront and correct sinful behavior that is shaking the very foundation of the family, which is the building block Uh, the fundamental building block of society across the board in our American churches. We are failing to confront and correct sinful failure within God's family that compromises and crumbles the very foundations of the church as we are God's redemptive force, uh, the cornerstone of God's redemptive force within the world. And these two things need to be corrected and they need to be corrected now for indeed it If they don't, we will see the church dry up, wither up, and pass away. 
until the church understands the necessity of confrontation and correction of sin within the life of the Christian, we will forever languish in obscurity and unfruitfulness as we claim to be completing the, and fulfilling the Great Commission. In this passage today, we see Paul appeal to the leaders, to the elders, to the mature Christians of the local congregation to lovingly confront and correct sin within God's household of faith. And so this morning we take for ourselves the text of 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 23 through 26 and we see the topic of the confrontation and correction of sin within the the life of God's church let us open our bibles there to 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 23 through 26 and stand in the honor of the reading of God's holy and inspired word 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 23 and following but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Father, we ask that you would mold us and make us into the image of Jesus Christ. We understand that biblical love has been expressed through him perfectly within the context of Scripture. And Lord, we ask that you would make us increasingly like him moment by moment so that we might fulfill the great commission and carry that gospel ministry you have entrusted to us, Father, into our homes, into our workplaces, into our communities, into our cities, counties, country, our continent, and even, yes, into the uttermost places of this world. Lord, Let us be your voice. Let us be faithful to you. As slaves who serve their master. Father, let us confront and correct sinful attitudes, sinful behavior, and errors in doctrine throughout your church. That you might be glorified and your gospel might go forward and many might come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lead us and guide us in this time. Let the Holy Spirit come now and illuminate this passage. And Father, change and transform us so that we go out differently than when we came in. Lord, it is our prayer as always that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in this passage that as God's useful servants, the spiritual leaders of the church are to confront and correct those in sin and serious doctrinal error. We see that as God's useful servants, as slaves, bond servants who have been purchased with the price of God's own blood, the spiritual leaders of the church are to confront and correct those in sin and serious doctrinal error. Indeed, why do we avoid uh, correcting those who are in error? Well, I think there are multiple reasons, some of which are we're just number one, we're afraid. We're afraid that they might get angry with us, that they might ta- retaliate, that we, they may just take their toys and go somewhere else and never come play with us again, right? We're scared of what might happen. 
we're afraid. Number two, we misunderstand Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And we say, well, God's word says, do not judge lest I be judged. And so we totally take it out of context and misunderstand what the purpose of that, is, of that passage is saying. Instead of saying, well, this passage is correcting us so that we don't judge harshly, but we judge in humbleness. We say, oh, well, this means I should never confront or correct anyone. Well, that's not what God's Word says. Thirdly, we feel like a hypocrite. Anybody ever been there? You don't want to correct somebody else? Thank you for volunteering and letting everybody know. You've been there. Appreciate it, Seth. But but here we are. With confrontation. Correction for sin. And then all of a sudden, there's a little voice in your head that goes, Hey, you've been in the same place and done the same thing. And all of a sudden you get quiet and you say, well, I can't, I can't correct my son because after all, I did the same things when I was his age. Yes, but hopefully you have learned that walking in, Christ, in obedience to God's commands is much more beneficial and blessed than pursuing the desires of the flesh. Some of us are just lazy. It's always easier to let the opportunity pass than, than to have to actually deal with and correct the sin, confront the sin. It's always easier to just let it go and say, ah, well, we'll see if it works out. Some of us have embraced the relative morality of our culture and we say, well, everyone should do what is right in his or her eyes. It doesn't really matter what God's word says. It's okay, you just do whatever you want and I'll do what I want. You believe what you want and I'll believe what I want. And hey, listen, what is true for you is not necessarily true for me. What's true for me is not necessarily true for you. We need to be guarded against these things. Some of us just simply don't know what to say. We don't know what to say in order to confront and to correct those who are in serious sin. But all of us can say wholeheartedly together that this week, earlier this week we saw that even when you don't know what to say, even when you don't know how to say it, at times there are times when you don't have the words, you need to stand up and say something. Lest you... Tell the whole world that your football program is more important than a child and his goodness, his, his uh, welfare and well-being. We see in this, church, in this passage a model for biblical confrontation and correction in the church. We see how we are to deal with the issues in church. And we see, first of all, that correction must be done in wisdom. We see there, that there in verse 23. Correction must be done in wisdom. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. What's the opposite of foolish speculations? Wisdom, right? So we need to have wisdom as we engage in confrontation and correction. It's crucial that we see ourselves, first of all, as the Lord's bondservant, as the Lord's slave, if we want to be obedient and fulfilling the ministry He has given to us. Someday you and I are going to answer to Him for whether or not we have loved the people that He has put within our lives, whether or not we have led those people to the life-changing, life-changing, uh, gospel transform, the, the life-changing and transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we are going to have to give an answer for everything that we have said, everything that we have done. You can, And we must understand, we cannot truly say, I love a person while we send him on the primrose path leading to hell. 
well, I love him. I just don't love him enough to tell him the truth about sin and about the wages of sin. That's not love. Love is when we lovingly reach out, embrace and correct and confront with the truth of the gospel. Paul begins here in this passage with an exhortation for the mature Christian, the elder in the church, to avoid what Calvin calls quarrelsome speculations, moronic debates, is another way of saying it. Now, let's just be honest for a second. If we've been married and you've been married for longer than five minutes, we've, we've had uh, foolish speculations in our households, haven't we? Indeed, we, we don't call them arguments, though, do we? What do we call them? They're, they're discussions, right? These are just discussions. But what is, what is going on here is he's saying, listen, you need to avoid these ridiculous, quarrelsome speculations that are present within the church. Indeed, we are to avoid these at all costs. Timothy, don't get caught up in these moronic debates over ridiculous speculation, speculations. Why? Because these things are false and they are unprofitable. Truth leads to what? Godliness. Untruth leads to what? ungodliness so timothy avoid untruth and ungodly that leads to ungodliness altogether only engage in what truth that leads to godliness you will remember from first timothy chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 that paul had already exhorted timothy to quiet some within the ephesian church why Because they were teaching all kinds of strange doctrines, strange teachings within the church. Indeed, we talked about when we went through that passage, some of them were even teaching that angels were being circumcised. Really? Who says? Exactly. It's not, there's nothing in the text of Scripture that would ever take you to that point of belief. There's nothing that could even profit the church from that discussion. And so, here he says, listen, the clear teaching of Scripture is to be the source and substance of the teachings and preaching of the Christian church. There is to be nothing else that distracts us, dissuades us from what we are to study. Listen, what are we to engage in as Christians within the church? The study and application of God's Word of what the Scriptures say and that alone. Not to run wild with speculation about this and that. We're to stay steady in in studying the source and substance of the Scriptures. Paul's goal here is for there to be God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Christ-centered, gospel-driven, biblical teaching in the church that leads to genuine conversion, godly character, and increasing maturity. He wants to see that the church indeed has preaching that is God-honoring, Christ-centered, gospel-driven teaching and preaching that leads to genuine conversion, godly character, and increasing maturity. See, Paul is saying in this passage, if you love to pick petty arguments, if you love to participate in foolish and ignorant debates over matters on which the Bible is silent or unclear, then you are not fulfilling the ministry God has given. You are distracting yourself and deterring yourself from the gospel ministry. These arguments do not lead to anything profitable. Instead, they lead to what? Division and disunity in the church and actually compromise the witness and the work of the church you ever seen a church that was split a hundred ways? I've seen them. 
And you know why they usually split? Because of some minute point of theology. Because of some minute element within the church. Indeed, we need to understand as people of God that we are to walk worthy of the calling by which we were called, worthy of the gospel that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, it says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in what kind of spirit? One spirit. With One mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we are to live if we are truly born again, blood-bought, redeemed Christians. Well, the color of the carpet's pretty important, right, Pastor? We need red carpet all through the entire church because that's the color of the blood of Christ that flowed at Calvary, right? We need, we need to make sure to remember that by, by the red carpet. I don't even know why red carpet's in here. Don't have any clue. I'm just throwing out there what I heard at another church one time. Well, the decor of the building is important. We need to do exactly how it's been done for all of the years up until now. Nothing ever needs to change. Listen, if you want to build a monument to 1959, you need to understand that you will have very little impact in the coming years. Our goal is not the color of the carpet to argue over the color of the carpet to wrangle over the decor of the building even to debate over the style of music for indeed all of us love and embrace different styles of music throughout the years and generations that are represented here but we can agree on the fundamentals of two things within all of our music first of all the music ought to be true according to the text of scripture and agreeable according to the doctrines expounded thereby number two that it the the text of the music ought to lead us and prepare us for the worship of the reading and studying of God's word in other words the music is leading us in worship to embrace God to be receptive to walk in God's word see the church is not the building the church is the people The church is not the building in which we meet. The church is the people in whom the Holy Spirit resides. And so we do do not need to engage debate on debate of useless items and issues. We don't need to argue over frivolities within the church. We need to engage in edification in the building up of the saints and so when we come to an argument when we come to a point of contention when we come to a debate and we understand because we are sinners we are going to have that happen within the church family there are going to be times we go through rough patches and have genuine debates over things but listen when we it comes to that we need to do a theological triage and ask is this worth arguing over And here are some questions to ask to determine if an issue is foolish speculation that needs to be avoided or if it needs to be engaged in because it is a sincere issue to be taken up by the church. First of all, is the person involved in clear disobedience to God's word? 
And notice that is not pet peeves and that is not personal preferences. Do they do it my way is not the question. What is to be taken up is the question of is there clear disobedience to God's word? If there is, there is to be confrontation and correction immediately. Second question. Is the person denying a fundamental truth of the faith? Is, there, is the person denying a fundamental of the faith? Are they denying the Trinity, God existing eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Are they denying redemption comes by sal- or salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Are they refusing to embrace the authority and sufficiency and inspiration of the Word of God in Scripture? Indeed, we understand what Augustine said. On the essentials, there is to be unity. On the non-essentials, there is to be liberty. In all things, there is to be charity. The third question is, not only is the person involved in clear disobedience to God's word, is the person denying a fundamental of the faith, but now we turn from pointing outwards away from ourselves and looking into the heart of the other person to, number one, looking into our hearts. And we ought to ask the question, what is my goal in arguing the issue? Is my goal pride and pompous circumstance? Indeed, am I, is my goal to have pride in proving myself right? Or am I genuinely desiring to confront, correct, and carry the gospel forward within this world? Is my concern myself or them? Which is it? Nine times out of ten, the foolish arguments of this world could be avoided if we would just take time to let the mirror of God's Word shine into our souls and show us ourselves, and we would be able to say, you know what, I want to argue this out of pride, but it's not worth it for the unity of the church and for the good of God's kingdom going forward. Proverbs chapter 18, verses 2 and 6. Proverbs 18, verse 2 says, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. What does that mean, Pastor? Well, it means you talk before you think. It's better to have everybody think you're a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt, isn't it? Fool wants to reveal his own mind. In verse 6 it says, A a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. Is that your point when you most often open your mouth to try to stir up strife between your brothers and your sisters and get them mad at you and cause arguments so that there's dissension within your house? Well, listen, if you're doing that, you're actually a fool. You're participating in violating this clear instruction. We need to be people who observe our lives and observe our actions and ask these questions. Is the person involved in clear disobedience to God's word? Is the person denying a fundamental of the faith? What is my goal in addressing and arguing the issue? Arguing for the sake of winning the argument never leads anyone to Christ or builds up the believer in true godliness. If you must confront or and correct another, your goal should be to help your brother grow in godliness. We must exercise wisdom in the midst of our correction. But in verses 24 and 25, Paul goes on and says, not only must we exercise wisdom in the midst of our confrontation and correction, but in the midst of our confrontation and correction, they must be done in what in love 
in love. Look there at verses 24 and 25, first part of 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Paul sets forth for the mature believer that these are how you address and deal with problems between yourself and another. He reminds us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think of our place as a bondservant of Christ first and foremost, and to live in the same way that would show forth his character in the midst of our lives. See, Paul puts together one negative and four positives to describe what it means to have biblical love. And let's just walk through these four, these five elements of biblical love within the midst of correction. First of all, he says there in verse 24, correction is not what? Quarrelsome. How many of you have kids that are quarrelsome? Anybody like, you know, hey, he's poking me. No, she's poking me. Hey, he's touching me. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching like an inch away. You know what the what it means to be quarrelsome, to stir up strife, to stir up arguments in the household. What this is saying is selfish actions and attitudes are inconsistent with the nature of God and the disposition of his followers and especially of his leaders. Unfortunately, infighting and positioning for power often characterize the local church. Indeed, we see that many within the church have no desire to listen to what comes from the pulpit, but they have every desire to do what? Have everything serve themselves. I want it my way. We'll go to Burger King. They'll give it to you. We're going to give it to you God's way. Doesn't really matter what you like or what I like or what you want or what I want. We want what God wants and we want to follow his word in every way. Perhaps we have become too accustomed in the Western church of this to this blatant disobedience to God's word, viewing it as an inevitable component of the modern church life. Well, you know, that's just him being him. That's just her being. Well, you know, she just she she speaks without thinking. And you allow that to go on? Indeed, I want to give you fair warning. If the goal of anyone is to stand up at a microphone at any of our church business meetings and stir up strife and contention or disunity and division within the church, you will be silenced. Why? Not because it's easy, not because it's fun, not because I want to, but because God's word says it should be that way doesn't say that there's not room for disagreement there's always room for disagreement but do it in a good and godly manner here it says do not be quarrelsome when you go to your spouse your child a child brother or sister family member or friend even your enemy don't go to straight them set them straight well i'm gonna go give him a piece of my mind by golly unbiblical that's not the way to deal with these issues Go with a genuine compassion, a genuine concern, having said in your mind that you're not going to engage in argument. You are going to engage in edification and understand this principle, this little quip or quote of truth. They will never care how much you know until they know how much you care. Listen, 
Don't go with a quarrelsome attitude to stir up strife and division. You go with an open, humble heart for unity and reconciliation. Correction, second of all, must be kind to all. The Greek word in this passage is literally mild or gentle. Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, to refer to his own behavior, comparing himself to a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own child with comfort and compassion. He is ministering to those within the church. He is mild. He is gentle. He is kind to all. Indeed, we often think that to be effective, we must be stern. We must be mean. We must just, you know, rail against our kids and show them that I'm in authority. And it's all about me. When the reality is, Paul says we are to be kind to all. Husbands, when you correct your wives, are you kind and tenderhearted, loving and ministering the mercy of God to her? Wives, when you call your husbands to account, are you loving them and, and, ministering, and, and ministering with mercy in the same way that you nursed your infant? Child, is that how you love one another? Is that how you minister to one another? Indeed, we need to understand that correction means that we are to be kind to all. Thirdly, correction must be based on biblical teaching. The person must be able to teach. This passage is clear that the mature Christian is not just one who knows about God's Word, even possesses a vast knowledge of God's Word and an understanding of Bible doctrine. This person is a person who effectively communicates God's wisdom that he is given through his Word. He takes God's Word and breaks it apart and simple ways to give it out so that it benefits and blesses those who receive it. The goal of true biblical preaching is not self-help us, not a self-help program where we make ourselves better before the living God. The goal is a gospel call for sinners to become saints and for Christians to be conformed to the character of Christ through the gospel work of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to know seven more facts, uh, no, no seven more facts or figures. You don't need to know a little more about what the pastor already knows. You need to know God. You need to trust God for your salvation. You need to be transformed by His grace. And you need to be increasingly conformed to Jesus Christ. That's what you need. Not some more words of helpful hints from the pastor. Listen, when you come to the services, you need to understand as you come, you need to know how to live differently. You need to know how to believe differently. You need to know how to think differently. You need to know how to live under a bigger and better view of the living God. How to live under a bigger and better view of God's grace. How to live under a bigger and better view of God's gospel. How to live under a bigger and better view of God's plan in your life. Indeed, correction must be grounded in the truths of Scripture and bring the Bible to bear in a practical way so that you can break it apart, take it into your life, and it changes and transforms who you are and how you live. The goal of biblical instruction is for you to be able to take it and apply it into your life, and correction must come from one who is able to teach. Fourthly, correction must be patient when wronged. 
Often when you try to correct others, they will respond by attacking you, by lashing out at you, by turning the tables over on you. They'll try to accuse you falsely of things that you are doing, perhaps having the wrong motives. Or maybe they'll remember some sin in your own life and they'll throw it in your face so that it would distract you and deter you from uh, dealing with the sin in their life. But understand, in all of these things, we are to be patient. For indeed, if we are impatient in any of these areas, when we are wronged by somebody, we lose the ability to correct effectively in in their lives. Correct them effectively in their life and in their practice. Listen, I don't like to share it often, but as pastor, I've been spat upon. I've been criticized. I've been cussed out. All of these things happen. Guess why? We live in a sinful and fallen world with sinful and fallen people. And the reality is, in those moments, the response that you have shows whether you truly believe that God is sovereign and He's in control and He's holding you in His hand or not. If we have the wrong response to a wrong rejection, then understand we compromise the ability for for us to correct others in this way. We must be patient when wronged. Fifthly, Correction must be done in gentleness. Correction must be done in gentleness. The word here is a word that is used for meekness, which in our society, in our culture, conveys weakness. But nothing could be further from the truth. For this word, meekness, this word, uh, gentleness, is used of Moses. It's used of Jesus. It's even used of Paul. And none of these men were weak. None of them were timid. All of them were bold. Indeed, meekness or gentleness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit and is used in Galatians Chapter 6, verse 1, when it talks about the need to restore with gentleness those who are caught in sin, the word was used in secular Greek to refer to a colt or a horse who had been broken, the, the beast that was strong, that was vibrant, but it was brought under the will of the master through the use of the bridle. And that's exactly the picture that God is painting of his followers within this world. They are not to be weak. They are not to be timid. They are not to shrink back when attacks come. They are to be bold men who would stand forward and boldly proclaim the word of truth in the gospel. But men who would always be gentle, always be be meek, and always be bridled by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this morning. You say you're a Christian. Are you led by the Holy Spirit? Has He got His bridle on you, leading you where He wants you to go? See, the man of God is never to act out of self-will. He is truly to be the Lord's bondservant. And indeed, Jesus in His incarnation is described as gentle, humble in heart, kind, meek, and patient. He's the perfect example in all of these areas. At the cross of Calvary, Jesus was mocked. He was maimed. He was spat upon. He endured all of this abuse from His accusers so that we might know His loving kindness, so that we might receive everlasting life, so that we might walk in a way that honors Him within this world. J. Sidlow Baxter summarizes this passage when he says this often a greater argument than what we say is how we bear being differed from let me ask you are you a living example of the gospel of jesus christ changing and transforming you 
See, redemption in our sinful lives was provided by the love Jesus showed for those who rejected and reviled Him at the cross. He was not quarrelsome. He was kind to all. He clearly expounded the gospel of God's grace in all of His teaching, most fully there at the cross of Calvary when He cried, It is finished. He had drunk the wrath, uh, the cup of God's wrath, turned it over and set it down and said, I fully received what you deserved for your sin upon myself so that you might be set free to love and to live for God forever. I want you to come to me. He was gentle. He was meek. He was patient. Even while they crucified him. And now we are his reflection to the world. And so we are to be filled with love and wisdom as we confront and correct those that intend to divide and destroy God's church. But finally this morning, all confrontation and correction must be done for the sake of souls. And it says that there in verses 25 and 26. And with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will see correction isn't just because it's fun it's not just because i want to do it not just because i want to prove myself right not just because i want to hear myself talk not just because i want to make you feel bad correction and confrontation done properly is done with an eye for the gospel because we are given the task of completing the great commission by taking the truth of God's word to the ends of the earth by teaching and preaching in such a way that man would see and understand his sin and God's savior that man would repent of his sin be delivered from the snare of the devil be uh, be delivered from the from the uh, inebriation of the devil's trap and he would be set free to live for God indeed all true teaching when you receive it will show you God and his infinite grace graciousness and it will show you yourself in your finite neediness true teaching will always show us ourselves as we are and our savior as he is and this always requires some repentance on our part for when we learn how great God is and we learn that God is far greater than we had ever realized before then it calls for us to repent and to place our faith increasingly in God and to surrender everything to him so that he might live through us for when we thought that our behavior squared up with the demands of God's law and through the faithful teaching of God's word we find out that it doesn't because we've lived in ways that were contrary to God's word then what does it call for you and I to do it calls for us to run to him to repent of our sin and to ask for forgiveness See, true teaching always aims at engaging someone in order that they might be led to repentance and to faith in God. Why does it matter about right right doctrine, about right teaching? Well, number one, the reason that it matters is because the destiny of your soul and my soul is at stake. The destiny of your soul and my soul is at stake. Heaven and hell are at stake by what we say we believe and whether or not we walk in the truth. See, God created man in his image and gave him commands to walk in and yet man reviled and rejected God he turned against him he chose to go his own way and yet God in his love gave his son Jesus Christ 
to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin, to set us free from the penalty and power of sin so that we might serve him forever. Indeed, God's plan of salvation is clear and know that no one comes to the Father but through the Son. And our proper response to the gospel of God loving man so much that he gave Jesus Christ to die in our place and to rise again in glorious victory over sin, death, and hell is to come and lay our lives down to repent of our sins and surrender all to him. But the second reason why doctrine is so important is because right doctrine gives us the assurance of God's purpose in our lives. It secures God's purpose in our lives. Earlier this week, Olivia and I found out that we lost our third child now. Our second miscarriage, we have one beautiful son, William, who you can see back in the back. But we have two beautiful children who God gave to us for some time, for some reason, for a short period. But then he not only gave them to us, but he took them back to himself. And those children in that in the midst of that time, there were many questions. There were many doubts. There were many moments where there were insecurities about who is God and why is he doing this? And what in the world are we supposed to learn? But at the end of the day, Olivia and I were able to rejoice because God in his grace, in his goodness even in the midst of the despair that we are experiencing has given us assurance assurance in what that though God has taken them from us he has brought them to himself and those children got to go into the eternal presence of the living God how without ever stepping into this world and knowing sin sorrow and shame for David tells us in the Old Testament That he would see his son, his infant son, again in the glory of God. We believe that as well. But see, life is complicated. Life is difficult. There are days I just don't understand what's going on. I can't make sense of anything. And God, in his infinite goodness and grace, has given me the words of comfort to strengthen me and sustain me and give me the ability to make it through the day. And what is that? That he is in control of all things. That Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 28 through 31 is true. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those who are foreknew, who He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Nothing can stand against us. When I know Christ, 
and I've given everything and surrendered everything to him. Nothing can stand against us. Nothing can thwart the assurance that comes from knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ and living in the power that it brings to my daily walk with him. Indeed, God's purpose in this passage is not our pleasure. God's purpose is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And even when it takes the most miserable circumstances of this world, it is my prayer that God's goodness and grace even in that moment, would be working the purpose of conforming me to the image of Christ. Are you willing to pray that today? See, we argue over petty issues of taste and theology. God overwhelms our pettiness with the passion of Jesus Christ on the cross. We reject and revile God's clear commands with our selfish and self-centered desires. And God overcomes our selfishness with His selfless love in sending His only Son to suffer and die as our substitute. We divide over our diverse earthly status and God spans the the gap of our earthly divisions to offer salvation to anyone from anywhere with anything in their past. Oh, fellow brother sister, fellow sinner, wouldn't you come today to embrace God? Wouldn't you come today to embrace salvation offered through Jesus Christ? Not in what you could do, but what God has done for you. Wouldn't you come today and say, I surrender all. Surrender all. Because God has loved me enough to send His Son to secure my eternal destiny. Fellow Christian, would you come today and say, you know what, I'm assured, I've got assurance that even though this life is difficult, even though things are perplexing, even though people are always petty, I trust God's got me in His hand. And there's no place I would rather be. Father, as we come to a close of our service today, let our worship begin in spirit and in truth. Let us be willing to surrender all that we are and all that we have, Father, to you and to you alone, so that you might take it and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we especially this morning want to ask, Father, that indeed those who are here this morning and for the first time heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, Father, that they would repent of their sins, that they would see their neediness, Father, their, their lack of ability to come before you in, the, in and of themselves because they are never able to keep, their, keep your law purely and perfectly. But, Father, you have given Jesus Christ to keep the law purely and perfectly. Father, to bring redemption to our hearts and our lives, to set us free to live for you. Lord, may you in the midst of these moments, Father, move upon them to step out and to come and to say this morning before this congregation, I surrender all. For the Christians who are here this morning, those who are already born again, blood-bought believers of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this morning their hearts would be filled with assurance that they indeed know the gospel, have received the gospel, and Father, that they are living in the gospel moment by moment, day by day. Father, if there is anything holding us back, anything that is deterring us or destroying us uh, within our lives, Father, Let us be willing to lay it down and to come and to follow you. Father, this morning we surrender all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's stand together as we sing together our hymn of invitation.